Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Okay, now today we are talking about uh, vaccines, and we're talking about the... uh, attack on science kind of the way people are and joining us is dr david gorski thank you for being here david thank you for inviting me um so uh david um what's your what's your view on uh the way society is kind of um reacting to to science now and vaccines and all this um well you know first off the vast majority of people are still pro-vaccine. However, thanks to you know social media and the and the internet, um, the small fringe group of anti-vaccine activists sound and appear a lot louder and larger than they actually are. Is that a problem? Do you think because? You know, when you get a vaccine, it's not just you, you're protecting, you're protecting other people, and you have to have, you know, a very high minimum number of people getting the vaccine for it to be effective collectively. I mean, it, it, so, so do you think even though there's that small number of people who are vaccine resistors, I mean, they're causing a bigger problem than just them, right? Um, they, they, you know, in some areas, uh, that's certainly true because uh, there, are, you know, there, I like to distinguish between anti-vaccine and vaccine hesitant. Now, the vaccine hesitant are parents who are concerned and maybe doubtful about vaccines or maybe fearful about vaccines. They're not anti-vaccine, but 
they're worried and in some cases worried enough to, you know, refuse vaccines. The, the anti-vaccine, people who are anti-vaccine are the hardcore. They're like, you know, they're, and they're the ones who are spreading the misinformation that contributes to vaccine hesitancy. So it's, you know, it's kind of, I like to say, you know, that the anti-vaxxers take the spark of vaccine hesitancy or the spark, or they take a spark of fear that some parents have and do their best to fan it into a roaring flame. And unfortunately they can be um, successful at that. So what are the consequences of this? I mean, I, I guess we've seen diseases coming back that were once, you know, thought to be cured, but isn't it much oh, bigger uh, than just that? Well, I mean, there's certainly that. I mean, you know, measles is, measles is kind of the canary in the coal mine because it is, you know, one of the most easily transmissible diseases that we know of. Um, I forget where I read this somewhere, but, um, you know, if, if you're not immune and walk into a room with someone who has the measles, your chances of acquiring the measles are something like 90% because it's just that contagious. So it's, you know, the, the, there's a reason that the measles is the disease that we see coming back first, you know, and most prominently. Uh, but it's not just the measles, obviously. Um, you know, any vaccine-preventable disease that's contagious, you know, we're at risk of seeing resurgences when vaccine uptake falls below a certain level. So what about the flu vaccine? I mean, this is one, and and I'll, I'll admit to this, you know, some number of years ago, you know, maybe a decade, I was, I was all into the X-Files, and I thought, you know, this whole flu vaccine, they're going to inject me with some sort of alien DNA or something mm-hmm. dumb like that, and I never got the flu vaccine. But once I got the flu... I mean that was it. I started getting the vaccine every time, and I, I've been I've been flu free. Um, um, yeah, yeah. The flu. Well, obviously, the flu vaccine is not one of our better vaccines for the simple reason that you know the strains of the flu that are circulating every year change. You know, and it's basically how good of a match we have between the vaccine and the flu strains that are circulating depends on how good the guess the educated guess is that you know our health officials make every year as to which which flu strains will be the ones that circulate during a given flu season. That being said, it's a common misconception about the flu that it's not a serious disease because people will call any sort of flu-like illness, and many of them are mild, that are not the flu. They'll call it the flu. You know, the real flu, when you get it, you know, you know, it knocks you on your posterior for a week or more, you know, or more, and you are sick as a dog. You know, the last time I had the flu was like 12 years ago. And and again, it was like I had just changed jobs. And for some reason, I didn't get the flu vaccine that year. And lucky me, like within a couple of weeks of starting my new job, I managed to land the flu. (laughs) It's, you know, uh, and now it's like, you know, 
yes, I'm required to get the flu vaccine every year because I'm a physician and the cancer center that I work at quite properly requires it. But it's like ever since then, it's, I've, you know, I'm like, okay, when are they going to start giving out the free flu vaccines? You know, because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like, you know, when are they going to have the employee flu vaccine uh, day? Yeah, we get that too on my campus. It always shocks me because so many students, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying is that students, anytime they get any sniffle, they'll say they have the flu so they can get out of class. And I think it does give them the wrong impression that, you know, any sort of cold is the flu. Right. I mean, what they really have is probably a cold, you know. And then, and then what this leads to is, oh, well, I don't need to get that vaccine because it's not that bad. I was reading in, in NBC reported this yesterday that there was a family where, and I, I, I'll try to get all the details. I, just, I think I know what you're talking about. I just heard about it. I don't know very much about it, which is why I don't feel like I can really comment on it, but I did hear about this story. Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention it very briefly for, for listeners. And it's that the, the, there was a, a mother of a few kids and the kids had gotten the flu. And uh, one of the kids eventually died. She had taken the kid to the doctor. Was running a high fever, and the, the doctor prescribed Theraflu, but she didn't want to take it or, or administer it to the kids. She asked the Facebook group, the anti-vax Facebook group, what to do. And the advice that was coming back into her was to give them elderberry and put potatoes in their socks or something like that. And and unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, you have tragedy strike. Um, but this happens, you know, over and over again. I mean, do you do you see the these sorts of things? Well, um, you know, as far you know, unfortunately, you know, given my hobby of you know writing about this sort of thing, I see uh, these sorts of stories all the time. I mean, we see, you know, it, 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 it's a you know, it's, uh, you know, very unfortunate. Uh, you know, people don't seem to understand that the flu can indeed lead to death. You know, I mean, it's not the, I mean, they'll try to, you know, they'll try to obfuscate. They'll say, oh, you died of pneumonia. Yeah, because you got the flu and, and it weakened your lungs defenses and you got pneumonia. You know, it's, uh, you know, most people who die of the flu don't die of the flu itself. They die of complications or super, you know, or pulmonary complications from the flu, usually pneumonia. So it's, uh, I hear this rationalization all the time. So do you see this same thing? Because I I have had colleagues who will say, well, I think my kids, you know, should get measles because it's it's healthy for them and it will uh, help their immune system. Yeah, uh, of course. I hear this all the time. You may have heard of pox parties, right? Uh, where the parents <laughs> yeah. actually try to intentionally, in, you know, infect their kids by you know, snot-covered cover, uh, whatever from a kid <laughs> who has the disease. Um, yeah. The thing is, it's, it, with the measles, at least, it's exactly the opposite. The measles does not help your immune system. The measles hurt if anything, hurts your immune system. There's good evidence coming out from recent studies, you know, from studies going back a while and a more, and there was a recent one that con, that confirmed this that um, having the measles causes what's something called immune amnesia which basically leads the immune system to quote unquote forget 
a lot of the things that it's been exposed to, and you have to be re-exposed to those things in order to acquire immunity to them again. And in fact, there's pretty, there's good evidence that having the measles results in a higher mortality from other infectious diseases during about a three-year period, at least, after having had the measles. So it, the measles does not actually make your immune system stronger. If anything, it makes it weaker for several years. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's kind of an, a really infuriating anti-vaccine. It's not just an anti-vaccine myth, because, like, there are a lot of people who are may not be anti-vaccine who kind of believe that getting the, um, quote-unquote, natural disease is better than um, being vaccinated against it. The thing I like to say is, yes, you can get lifelong immunity from the measles by having the measles, but you have to get the measles, and there are the and there are the risks of the measles. You know, it, you know, roughly one or two out of a thousand will die of the measles um, in in a developed country. Like, uh, you know, it, as we saw in Samoa and underdeveloped countries, it can be much higher than that. Um, there's the chance of encephalopathy. You know, there's the chance of subacute, like subacute sclerosis, panenophilitis, which is a horrible complication of the measles that happens a few, several years after the measles that's uniformly fatal. So, sure, you can get your lifelong immunity from the measles, but you have to have the measles and take all the risks of, that go along with it and also, you know, this, the disease itself. So... One thing that I see now um, is not just a resistance by some people to wanting to get vaccines for, you know, diseases that have been around for a long time, like measles. Um, mm -hmm. But every time there's a new disease that pops up, uh, people immediately jump to, oh, they're going to try to stick us with some sort of, you know, corporate vaccine that's going to kill us or poison us or something like that. And, and we saw that with Zika um, a couple of years ago, where people were, people were already spreading misinformation about the Zika vaccine before such a vaccine had even been created. Um, right. And, and now we start to see that same stuff with the with the coronavirus. Yeah, this is an, this is an yeah this is an old anti-vaccine conspiracy theory that is go, you know goes that every time there's an outbreak of a new disease. It, I, I wasn't paying attention at the time because this was before I really got into studying and writing about the anti-vaccine movement, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the same sorts of conspiracy theories were going around when SARS was around, you know, 18 year, 18, 17, 18 years ago. Um, it's, you know, anytime there's a new disease that, you know, that's a threat that, leads to, you know, scientists trying to come up with a vaccine for it because you want to stop its spread. This is, you know, it's, it, you get the conspiracy theory that, oh, the disease, either, either one, it's one of two conspiracy theories. One is they're just using that disease as an excuse to push more vaccines. The other one is that they claim that the disease is man-made or being spread intentionally in order to sell vaccine, you know, to sell a vaccine or, you know, to give an excuse to create a vaccine and a new, you know, profit center for big pharma. 
So what do you think now? I mean, have you been watching how people have reacted to the outbreak of the coronavirus and and, and sort of all well, the well, well, yeah. The biggest the the there the, the, there are a couple of favorite anti-vaccine theories, conspiracy theories out there right now. One is that one is that this is a um, a an attempt at a coronavirus a coronavirus vaccine gone bad or gone wrong based on a a, a, a guy basically a, you may have seen this one a guy by the name of uh James Lyons Weiler claim you know claims to have found um sequence similarity between an insert in this particular new strain of the coronavirus and a a plasmid called P shuttle, a vector. Um, it's like a, it's a very silly conspiracy theory because, um, it, it, it's really not that tight of a, um, it, you know, it, it's not a very good match for one thing. Um, for another thing, a match on a, a match with a commercially available vector <laughs> doesn't, you know, if it were truly, of a strain, you know, if it were truly a uh, strain of virus made to make a vaccine, the match should not be like 68%. It should be close to 100%. So, but, but in any case, the idea is, well, it's a, it's a vaccine strain of virus that mutated and went bad and got much more virulent or it, or it was, you know, there were Chinese scientists supposedly were trying to make a more, vir- you know, a, a more virulent strain to make a vaccine against. Um, it, it's it's nonsense. Um, it's kind of embarrassing that this guy actually did run a bioinformatics core at one point in his career, uh, but he's devolved into a total anti-vaccine crank, in my opinion. Um, the other one that I saw that was somewhat clever, but is that it's actually the flu vaccine that, that led to coronavirus. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, so there's a phenomenon called viral interference. I don't know if you've heard of it, where in, you know, infection by one virus due to some sort of non-specific immune effect makes infection by another virus less likely. So here's here's the here's the conspiracy theory that I that I saw. Um, they, they, basically, someone note some anti-vaxxer somewhere noted that noted an article in the Chinese English language Chinese press that China had bought twice as much flu vaccine this year compared to previous years. Um, and he was saying, well, because so many more Chinese are getting vaccinated against the flu vaccine that left them open to coronavirus uh, because it normally the flu vaccine would interfere with coronavirus infection. Uh, the problem, of course, is one. When I looked at it, the actual number the actual number of doses of vaccine was still small compared to the Chinese population. Two, they don't really demonstrate that twice as many people. Three, there's not really any good evidence that that the flu virus, you know, interferes much, interferes much, if at all, with the coronavirus, much less the strain of coronavirus that's come out of China. So, but it makes for a good conspiracy theory. 
What do, I remember when when Zika was the big thing here, and I mm-hmm. I started polling on that just a few just a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, and and it became a big thing here in South Florida because because of mosquitoes and 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 because we're the gateway to Latin America where there were a lot more cases of it. But when we polled on it, we were finding twenty percent of Americans. Uh, believed in one conspiracy or another about Zika, and some of some of the people were saying that you know vaccines cause Zika, or that GMOs oh, you know, cause Zika. <laughs> I had not heard that vaccines cause Zika, but it doesn't surprise. How did I miss that one? Because I actually did write a, about a couple of Zika conspiracy theories back when you know, Zika was a thing. Uh, so this, this is the interesting thing, is if you put these theories down in a survey and you say, you know, which of these do you think are more likely true, you will have a lot of people who maybe not have communicated it before, but will say, oh, vaccines, yeah, that probably caused it, and they'll, they'll wind up picking those, even though they won't be, you know, floating around through the uh, through the social media. Um, well, yeah, you know, anti... I always like to I always like to say that you know anti-vaccine beliefs are basically founded on conspiracy theories because um, in order to believe that vaccines cause so much harm, you basically have to believe what I like to call the central conspiracy theory of the anti-vaccine movement, which is that quote unquote they know. The they being, you know, the CDC, the government, big pharma, the medical, uh, you know, me- doctors, the medical industry, they know that vaccines cause all these horrible things, but are covering up the evidence for it. You know, that's basically what I like to call the central conspiracy theory of the anti-vaccine movement. And so, it comes in all sorts of flavors. There's like all sorts of variants of it, but if you boil them down, these conspiracy theories down to their essences, that's basically it. Um, I heard, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that if <clears throat> the coronavirus is is bad, um, but all these people who are freaking out about it, um, many of them aren't getting their flu shots, and they're actually at more <laughs> risk from the flu than they probably are from coronavirus. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there have, you know, I've seen, you know, there have been a number of, I've already seen at least a couple articles pointing out that, you know, in the U.S. at least, the flu is a way bigger threat than coronavirus, which is really how many, only a handful of Americans have been, you know, infected by it so far as I recall. Um, maybe if you're in China, the calculation would be different, but here in the U.S., <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, so we're in the we're in the depths of flu season right now. It always shocks me. Like I wish that I could force my students to get the flu because I'm teaching a 250 person class um, mm-hmm. on conspiracy theories. My guess is a lot of the students in it are are believers, um, and well, I imagine there's quite we, a few we, anti-vaxxers. So I'm concerned about there being hey, disease spread. <laughs> we, you know, the thing about conspiracy theories is all of us believe in them to some extent at one time or another. It's just how much, I mean, for, uh, you know, for instance, um, the whole fiasco in Iowa with the democratic prime, you know, the democratic caucuses, how many people who are normally otherwise seem rational about 
seems, you know, odd, you know, and start thinking there must be something more there. It's unfortunately a very natural human tendency to look for explanations of, you know, that, and sometimes in looking for explanations, you know, we may, you know, make correlations or connections that, you know, we're quick to make connections or correlations that are not really there or that are very tenuous. Um, the difference between a skeptic and everyone else is that we, we skeptics try to question these connections, you know, and then if you look at it, it but it's very natural for human beings. And, and since you're teaching a course on conspiracy theories, I'm assuming you know this. <laughs> like it's very natural for human beings to make up conspiracy theories, you know, just about everything. And the, you know, the problem of course is that, you know, a lot of these, consp- you know, I think it's, you know, these a lot of these conspiracy theories have real-world consequences, such as anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. Now, you've looked into more than just uh, vaccines. You've looked into, mm-hmm. you know, other sorts of pseudoscience that's been pushed by um, the mainstream media. Like, what are, what is, what's some of the pseudoscience that, that maybe um, upsets you or gets in your craw the most? Oh, you know, obviously it's got to be, given that I'm a cancer surgeon, it's cancer quackery. Um, You know, there, it really, you know, I've been covering that for a long time. You know, various, various claims of, you know, natural healing, uh, various treatments that are, have no evidence that they work, um, but are often sold sometimes in these very luxurious clinics, um, most of which are not in the U.S., but, you know, (laughs) there's um, cancer quackery has got to be up there um, because I've, you know, I've seen every so often I see its victims. I mean, you know, every once or twice a year, we'll get a woman with breast cancer who's, neglect you know with a neglected nasty breast cancer who went you know to a naturopath or a homeopath or some other you know alternative practitioner and didn't come to see us you know until it was huge you know eroding you know fungating eroding through the skin ulcerated bleeding you know etc so I see it occasionally. Thank, thankfully, not that often, but I do see it. The uh, I, I, I'll chime in on that just for a second because my wife was diagnosed two and a half years ago now with cancer, and we were apart at the time. I was teaching in London, and she was she was at home. Mm-hmm. And you know, the first thing that a person does when they get diagnosed with cancer is you know Google it. Yep. So the stuff that came up was you know tape. I think some of the sites she was finding on the first search page were like uh, tape garlic and onions to your feet and that will cure it or if you eat lots of turmeric it will cure it and luckily for her she's married to a person who can read Google Scholar and can go in and look at the 
actual studies and see what you know survival rates are and that you no know, turmeric probably doesn't doesn't cure cancer. Um, and because I'm a professor, she was able to go to the you know very good Sylvester Cancer mm-hmm. Center here at University of Miami and, and is cured in a year free. But a lot of people make that mistake where they're they're afraid and they say, oh, why would I get why would I get chemo when I can just do onions? Well, here's, let, let me give you the most common reason. You know, so you, you'll hear, you'll, the, the, you'll frequently hear what I like to call cancer cure, alternative cancer cure testimonials. You know, someone says that alternative medicine cured them of their cancer. Here's the most common type of these. Um, the most common type of these, and, and I like to always ask, did this person have surgery for the cancer? So for like breast cancer, did this person actually undergo surgery for the breast cancer? And the answer is almost always yes. So what they then they say, but I don't want to have chemotherapy or radiation. I'll do this. I'll do mistletoe extract or I'll do whatever. Well, in that case, the surgery. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Did cure the cancer. You know, the, the, the treatment for breast cancer, for instance, is surgical. Um, what you're doing by foregoing the adjuvant therapies, you know, the chemotherapy and the radiation, is you're just greatly increasing the chance that the cancer will come back. Um, and you got lucky, you know, it didn't come back. Uh, the surgery was enough, but, um, 
it's to, to people who don't understand the difference between, you know, the primary, primary and adjuvant treatment of a cancer, these testimonials can sound convincing. I mean, there's a guy by the name of, there's a man by the name of Chris Wark who got colon cancer at a very young age. He was like in his 20s. And it was stage three colon cancer because you know, it, it had gone it, it had gone to the lymph nodes, and he had a uh, you know a partial colectomy, and was recommended chemotherapy because that was the standard of care for stage three colon cancer. Um, but refused it, and you know decided to quote unquote go natural. And, you know, he was fortunate enough to survive. You know, it's now like 15 years later and he's fine. But he he was convinced by, you know, refusing the chemotherapy and doing well that his, by his refusing the chemotherapy and doing well, that what all the other, you know, quackery that he, you know, indulged in afterwards, after his surgery was what really cured him. And, you know, in fact, I wrote an article about him where I like went through the odds and I said, well, you know, I estimate that he basically decreased his chances of survival from like 70 to 40%. And, you know, 40% is still a decent sized number. So he got lucky, you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he survived. And, and, and he, he even, he even directly addressed that saying surgery doesn't cure anyone with stage three cancer. Well, yes, it does. <laughs> you know, it can. Um, you, it, your chances are a lot, you know, before the development of multi-modality, multidisciplinary cancer care, surgery was all we had to cure colon cancer. You know, same with breast cancer. Um, I like to say, you know, people, people for, you know, will criticize, for instance, the radical mastectomy as a horrible operation. And yes, it was a horrible operation, but why did it come about? You know, why did Professor, you know, Professor Halstead back in the day, you know, in the late, late 1800s come up with this operation? The reason was if you were going to cure breast cancer in the late, you know, 18th, I'm sorry, in the late 19th century, surgery was it. You were going to cure it with surgery. That was the only thing that had a chance of producing a long-term survival and getting rid of the cancer. And so it's not, you know, so it was not unreasonable given what was known at the time for a surgeon to think that more radical surgery would be more likely to save the woman's life. And in fact, Halstead's results were better than the results at the time, which is why everyone adopted the the operation. The problem is we kept doing the operation decades after, you know, less, it was becoming apparent that less radical operations could produce the same outcomes with, you know, adjuvant care, you know, therapy. So, but the point is, you know, in the time that operation was invented or, you know, thought of, it was not an unreasonable operation, you know, because basically surgery was it. As far, if you were going to cure breast cancer, all you had was surgery. Same with colon cancer. All you had was surgery. You know, if surgery didn't take care of it, it couldn't be taken care of. Now we have all these, uh, you know, chemotherapy and other therapies that can significantly decrease the chance of a recurrence after surgery. Uh, so, 
they didn't have those back then. So what do you see as some of the other big dangers right now in terms of, you know, pseudoscience um, leading people away from getting real cures for, for, for problems? Um, well, I, I mean, it's not just for cancer, obviously. Um, uh, that's just the one I probably have dealt with the most. I, I mean, one thing that I there, there's a certain area that that I that I'm particularly, you know, that I, that I write about on a fairly regular basis, and that's all these stem cell clinics. Uh, that have popped up, you know, hundreds of them in the U.S., thousands of them, if you count the world. And here, here's the thing. I, I say this, and I, I, I say this, and some people will take issue with it, but I still believe, I, I have not yet found an exception. Every for-profit stem cell clinic, to me, you know, from my, is a quack clinic, you know, a predatory clinic, because, they, you know, they unless they're treating, you know, doing standard of care, treating hematologic malignancies where, you know, you have, you ablate the bone marrow and then use stem cell rescue, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there, there, there's no evidence yet that these things, you know, that these treatments do what they claim, especially when they start using stem cells for everything, you know, like autism, Alzheimer's, you know, stroke, et cetera. You know, the, the data, the evidence, just isn't there yet. And what really bugs me about these stem cell clinics is that because they're so many of them are so shady, is that they are tarnishing. You know, they're making what could, you know, what could be, could ultimately turn out to be useful treatments and potentially revolutionary treatments look like quackery. You know, mm. <laughs> because what they're doing now is quackery, as far as I'm concerned. But and the and the reason for that is because they just haven't te- they they don't know for certain that what they're doing actually works and they're just sort of making it up as they go. Well, they're making it up as they go along. They're just like you know isolating you know me- mesenchymal stem cells from fat. You don't you know with a lot some of these clinics you don't even know if what they're injecting really is stem cells. You know, <laughs> it's like you you have no way of knowing, and they're charging tons of money, and then you know. It's, a lot, some of these clinics actually are doing what they claim, you know, quote unquote clinical trials and charging patients to be on them. Um, and they put the clinical trials up on clinicaltrials.gov, you know, the website where all clinical trials must be registered. But when you look at the clinical trials, they're like these, they're like phase one clinical trials, which most people don't realize that phase one clinical trials are just testing safety. And like the out, they're looking at outcomes that are like, subjective they're not blinded you know so whenever you look at subjective outcomes if the trial's not blinded it's pretty much worthless uh you know they're they're basically using their clinical trials not far more for marketing than actual actually trying to find out if what they're doing benefits anyone so how about something like, and I know you've written a lot about this, acupuncture. So a lot of people mm-hmm. swear swear by acupuncture, and I, I think there are governments and insurance companies and, and whatnot who, you know, recommend it as part of wellness or the greatest triumph of pseudoscience is how many 
people think acupuncture is anything more than an elaborate theatrical placebo. Um, it's like, and, and unfortunately it's like, it's really, I mean, I guess I, I, I seem to recall that Medicare just agreed to, to pay for acupuncture if it's part of a clinical trial for back pain. Um, it's if you critically look at the studies and the totality of the evidence, you're very hard pressed to come to any other conclusion than that acupuncture is basically a plus, is basically placebo medicine. It doesn't. If you look, if you look at the studies, you can you, you see it doesn't matter where you stick the needle, which immediately tells you that all the whole all the non all the stuff about meridians and you know where you know the channel for the flow of key tea are non-existent nonsense. It doesn't even really matter if you stick the needles in because there, there was a lovely trials like 10 or 12 years ago in Germany for low back pain that used as its control, its sham placebo control, twirling toothpicks against the skin. There was no difference between the groups. Um, Although both were better than the no treatment control, which just goes to show it's placebo medicine. So acupuncture, I fear, is a battle that we're losing on because it's just, it's, it's not, here's the other thing about acupuncture that a lot of people don't know. You know, you'll frequently hear that acupuncture is like this ancient medicine, um, 2,000, 3,000 years old, you know, from China, you know. Acupuncture as it's practiced now dates back to around 1930. Acupuncture before that used, it was very, was pretty much indistinguishable from that old discredited European practice known as bloodletting. Um, <laughs> The old acupuncture needles used to be these big honking things that looked like that were looked like lancets. Um, and in fact, there's a there's an interesting book by a Scottish surgeon whose name escapes me at the moment that Harriet Hall wrote about once on our on science based medicine. He spent 30 years in China around the turn of the 20th century, so it was something like from 1890 to 1920 or something like that. And he described what acupuncture looked like then. And it was basically sticking hot or cold needles into various, hot or cold large needles into various things. And he even described the case of a child who died because they stuck a needle, you know, like they stuck needles in and one of them hit like a rather large blood vessel, which means you had to stick it in pretty deep, you know, because to hit, you know, made blood vessels that will, who, that if you lacerate them will end your life, you have to be sticking it in pretty deep. Um, what else? I, I mean, so basically around 1930 or so was when a Chinese acupuncturist, and I'm blanking on his name, invented the fine little filiform needles that we all see now. And the reason he did that was because he wanted to apply. First, he thought he was trying to shoehorn in um, 
traditional Chinese medicine ideas into like new findings in neurology. And the other reason is he wanted to be able to do acupuncture on children. And so he came up with these define the really fine thin needles that they use now. Um, another thing a lot of people don't know about traditional Chinese, not just acupuncture, but traditional Chinese medicine in general is that a, a reason, a large reason for its popularity now is traces directly to, um, Chairman Mao actually. Um, when you, know, you may have heard Chairman, the whole idea Mao had was that he wanted to quote unquote unify Eastern and Western medicine. And in, to come in, in order to do that, his physician, you know, his medical, um, his medical officials worked on taking all these disparate folk medicine traditions that were around in China at the time and trying to shoehorn them into like a unified whole, you know, basically making some of it was making it up as they went along, but some of it was taking all these ideas and trying to make it sound like traditional Chinese medicine rather than a whole bunch of folk medicine traditions from all sorts of, you know, different parts of the country, you know, different populations, different, ethnic groups was actually this unified whole. Uh, and he also promoted it to the rest of the world. Um, so for instance, you may recall there was a New York times reporter and I'm blanking on his name who in the 1970s supposedly underwent supposedly was he, he had, he got acute appendicitis while he was in China um, reporting on something. And so he was operated on and he described how he was treated with acupuncture after his surgery and his, and his bowels started working. You know, it, 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 it's, it was reported very like acupuncture is this miraculous treatment that took care of his pain and, you know, got him pooping again, you know, when in reality, if you look at his study critically, as uh, one of our former writers, Kimball Atwood, did back in the early days of science-based medicine, what probably happened is he just had a post-operative ileus that resolved around the time he got the acupuncture. <laughs> so, so, for the, so for the most part, a lot of people just just mistake what would be a good outcome as being caused by you know, whatever treatment they, they happened to spring for at the time. Yes. And, and, you know, it's, you know, it's not just acupuncture though, because acupuncture is just a part of traditional Chinese medicine. Um, it's the whole thing of traditional Chinese medicine. I mean, um, for instance, you know, um, Cleveland, a lot of universities, now have like traditional Chinese medicine programs or they have, you know, quote unquote integrative medicine programs that feature traditional Chinese medicine. The Cleveland Clinic, for instance, explicitly has a, a traditional Chinese medicine herbologist, you know, and so it sells these traditional Chinese medicine things. Uh, as a, not all of traditional Chinese medicine 
is nonsense, although its underpinnings with, you know, energy flow and life energy and stuff like that are, you know, the, but the only parts of traditional Chinese medicine that really have any hope of being real medicine are maybe some of the herbal remedies, you know, herbs can be, herbs can contain real medicines. I mean, a lot of our medicines that we get in, um, you know, a lot of our medicines now are derived from natural products. So, but that's, but there's nothing special in that. It's something that we've been doing forever. And in fact, what I like to say about herbal medicine is, you know, is what we take a product that's like heavily, it's mixed with all sorts of other things and it may have, you know, unpredictable or unreliable concentrations of the active ingredient and why why not prefer the active ingredient, you know, like isolate the active ingredient, which is what we've done, you know, like getting digoxin, you know, digoxin from foxglove, for instance, or, you know, or taking, getting, you know, salicylic acid from, uh, what was it, bark? And, you know, mod- and then finding out that if you modify it and put an acetyl group on it, you have aspirin and it works better. But uh, something about the whole fal- the whole idea that it's natural seems, appeals to people. Um, so I remember watching the Olympics a few years ago and many of the swimmers had done what's called cupping. Mm-hmm. Where I guess it was a, a Chinese technique where they would sort of suck a yeah. bruise onto their skin, and they said that this made them swim better or got rid of their muscle aches or something. Right? Like yeah, that. you basically you basically heat up like a little glass ball bulb or something with a relatively small neck, and uh, you heat that up and then put it on the skin with like a little oil so it doesn't doesn't leak any air and then of course as it cools off it creates suction <laughs> yes yes it's uh, i think mike was it mike yeah i think um the swimmer uh, yeah, yeah i think michael, michael Phelps, right? using, yeah he was using it as i remember i mean all it does is you know it's all it does is it's like giving it's like giving them a a hickey, you know, basically yeah. it, bre- it breaks some blood vessels, you know, it'll leave you with a bruise. Uh, it's, it, the, I know, you know, athletes have a tendency to be, you know, somewhat superstitious or they think that things help them whether they actually do or not. And maybe in a way they might, if it, you know, mentally, if you think you're prepared to do better, maybe you actually do better, but Physiologically, there's no evidence that cupping does anything other than, you know, make a bruise. And, and, and that's particularly, that's not good for you, right? I mean, blowing up your capillaries probably doesn't, you know, probably doesn't I have mean, a good, yeah, good health benefit. I, I mean, there is no health benefit that I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, it probably doesn't hurt you too much as long as it's not too much of your skin surface area. I mean, it, it, the claims that, you know, oh, it stimulates your lymphatic flow or it stimulates your blood flow or, you know, all of the stuff that's claimed for it, it's just no real basis in science. 
So, you know, we see so many of these pseudoscience claims in the mainstream. Well, you know, it's it's popular, unfortunately, and it, it, there's I think there's an appeal of the whole do-it-yourself thing. You know, uh, you know stinking doctors, you know, <laughs> you can, uh, and yeah, it, there, there's nothing wrong with taking control of your own health. I mean. Most, you know, most primary care doctors certainly would encourage that. The problem, of course, is when taking control of your own health involves embracing pseudoscience or treatment, things that either don't, that don't do you any good or may even do harm. Um, and, and of course, a lot of that, you know, a lot of the way that various People who market this stuff sell it is, of course, by saying you're taking control of your own health. I mean, a great example of that is uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, who basically sells a whole lot of nonsense under, but the marketing pitch is that you're, they are, quote unquote, empowering women. Um, and in fact, if you criticize Goop, uh, Uh, well, the New York Times, which is a perfect example of this, it was an op-ed um, by uh, Eliza Alberts and uh, Jennifer Block, basically defending Goop and criticizing and attacking Goop's critics as you know tools of the patriarchy. You know, it's like the, the attack on Goop is because patriarchal medicine doesn't like women taking control of their own health. No, criticism of Goop is because it sells nonsense and pseudoscience for, at, at, you know, rather high prices. You know, it, it's kind of funny how a very, how an already wealthy actress, you know, becomes, you know, the champion of the common woman for um, selling them, you know, selling them eggs to stick up their vaginas at high prices and thus making herself even wealthier. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, well, now we are running out of time. Um, um, thank you very much for coming on, David. Um, okay. Do you have a website or do you have a um, an, uh, a place that you recommend people go? To well, science-based medicine. Well, obviously, I'm the you know managing editor of sciencebasedmedicine.org. It's all one word. Um, and you can find my other website by just Googling my name. Uh, but, but I primarily push science-based medicine. Um, and we, we write about a lot of these things. And this been, you know, the one block or, you know, oh man, it's hard to believe it's been 12 years now. But uh, it's still going strong. Oh, fantastic. Well, again, um, our guest has been Dr. David Gorski, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.